Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're turning to the book of Micah. We'll be reading the first four verses of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. The word of the Lord. O oh, Heavenly Father, at the beginning of our service, we did indeed pray that you would come, that you would come down out of your place and be with us. And so we continue to pray that you would come, that your spirit would come now. Your word, which we just read, calls on all to hear. Father, send your spirit to unstop our ears that we may indeed hear your truths, which are words of life to us. And we ask this in the blessed name of our one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I noticed somebody put some five-hour energy in the pulpit. I don't know if that was a signal they wanted more preaching this morning. It's Advent, so we go to the Old Testament, right? We, it's Advent, uh, it, it is appropriate to go to the Old Testament, the anticipation, the looking forward to the, the coming Messiah. Uh, we go to the Old Testament, uh, we see that so clearly, but we also go to the Old Testament, the, the 8th century, you know, the 700s B.C., where we meet prophets like Isaiah, we meet prophets like Amos and Hosea and Micah. Uh, it seems like there is so much in common with that day and this day, which is, on one hand, encouraging. You know, we feel the problems of our day. We feel the, the tensions of everything, be it political or moral or however we, uh, however we experience that. And we realize that it's not any worse today than it has been in the future or in the past. We can look back in history and, and we can see days throughout the centuries that are very much like the days that we live now. We go back and, and we see their longing and, and we know that their longing is the same as our longing. They were looking for the first coming of Jesus for for God to come into history. We long for the second coming of Jesus. So when we talk about Advent, it's not just about looking back 
to the birth of Jesus, it's very much about looking forward to that second coming, to the parousia, when Jesus will come again to, uh, to make his church whole and to redeem and to consummate the, uh, the salvation which has been inaugurated in his first coming. So we come to the book of Micah this morning. Micah is a, is a book about God. If you read the Friday letter, you'll note that his name itself is kind of a sentence. It means, who is like our God? Uh, there is a question, even in the naming of Micah, uh, that points us to the knowledge of the Holy One, points us to the knowledge of this one that we long for. You note that in the end of the book, chapter 7, verse 18, Micah weaves his own name into the prophecy. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, for he delights in steadfast love. This is where the book of Micah is going. This is the question that he is penetrating. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be touching down in Micah. This week, we want to focus on who is God that is being invited into history. Next week, we're going to look at, you know, what is the, the history that is demanding a God to step into it? And then we're going to look at, uh, in two consecutive weeks, the character of the shepherd, the shepherd ruler, some of the great prophecies that we listen to at Christmas time and Advent come out of Micah. You know, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the tribes of Judah, from out of you one shall come. So we'll spend some time soaking there and then we'll end with Micah 7, 18 and celebrate a God like no other. So that's kind of the map of where we're going. Uh, let's go back though. Uh, this first week and say, you know, who is it? When we think about Advent, we think about incarnation, we think about God coming down and entering history, who is it that we are inviting? A.W. Tozer, uh, a couple decades ago now, but certainly true, uh, said this, the heaviest obligation laying on the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and worthy of her, the church. In all of her prayers and labor, this should have the first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them, them undimmed and undiminished the noble concept of God which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of the past, from the scriptures. This will prove of greater value to them than anything uh, that art or science can devise. You think about that when you hear that. The heaviest obligation laying on the church today is to purify and elevate 
her concept of God until it's once more worthy of them. You may step into that and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, we, we live in an immoral world. Uh, the, the heaviest obligation is to teach the world morality. It's to stand for morality in the public square. Maybe you say, we, we live in a world that is rampant with injustice. The heaviest obligation that we have is to step into the breach and to be active, you know, promoting justice where there is injustice. I would say those things are true. But I think what Tozer is getting at, and I think maybe what we need to think about today is this. Those things absent a concept of who God is are just things. They're, they're, they're moral or uh, they are moralistic actions that, that aren't driven by a concept of who God is in, in all of His aspects, in His holiness, in His mercy, in His justice, all of these things. If we really want to know how it is that we are to act in this world, we, we need to know our Creator. We need to know our Savior, our Redeemer. We, we need to be filled with Him so that we can pursue the things that delight his heart. And so I want to start there because that's where the book of Micah starts. The book of Micah starts with, with God coming down. Uh, for the behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and he will tread on the high places of the earth. So I want to just march through three, uh, three aspects of this. First of all, his character. Uh, who is this God who is coming down? Three P's for you, just in terms of subpoints, uh, organized mind, right? Uh, we have his power, we have his purity, and we have his personality. Uh, his power is obvious here in this passage. In fact, uh, I mean, well, you see it in verse 4 the mountains will melt under him, the valleys split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down from a steep place. Uh, it is a picture of, of chaos. Holy chaos, to be sure, but chaos. The verb split apart is used respectively for the rupture of wineskins in Joshua, the tearing asunder of a city wall during a siege in 2 Kings, the ripping apart of a body during a massacre. I mean, all of these things are kind of what are being pictured here when we see the verbiage there. And it's interesting, if you read the grammar here throughout this passage, it's, it's very spotty. Uh, it it kind of doesn't flow very smoothly, and one writer says it's almost as if Micah is overwhelmed by the power and the majesty that God has revealed to him, and, and so he can't even think coherently. He can't even, you know, put the words together one sort of foot down after the other. It just comes out in this way. The power of God. Think of many aspects of, of God. We think of Him as a friend. We think of Him as a merciful Savior. We think about Him in so many ways. But do we really, do we really dwell? Do we really think about 
you know, the naked power that exists in our conception of who God is. And is that something that is really a comfort to us? Is that something that is really uh, attractive to us as we think about the one who is Yahweh, who is the God over us? Certainly the scriptures display it this way. Throughout the scriptures we see this, you know, even in the, the, the call to confession. You know, God says, look at I'm not like you. You thought that I was one like yourself, but look at my power. Look at how I display this. How does this meet our longings? How does this comport with our ideas of who God is? And He is not only powerful, but He is also pure. He's holy. We see that in verse 2. Hear, you peoples, uh, pay attention, O earth. And let the Lord be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Uh, there you get the idea of holiness. You know, we think about another uh, 8th century B.C. prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 6. He has the vision of God in his temple. That year, King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord seating on a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each of them with six wings. With two, they covered their face. Two, they covered their feet. Two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Foundations of the threshold shook with the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And what is Isaiah's response to this when he sees the holiness of God up close? Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal taken from the uh, with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. There's a crisis, isn't there, when we see the holiness of God? You know, there's a crisis of recognizing, again, going back to Psalm 50, you thought that I was like you, but I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm coming down to bear witness. I, I am not stained by sin. I am not stained by imperfection, God says, but you, us. And it's really important to remember, we'll come back to this especially next week, you know, these prophecies are given to the people of God. This is the word of Micah, you know, the word of the Lord through Micah to not necessarily the nations. This isn't Jonah going to the Assyrians. This isn't, uh, uh, this isn't going to the nations. This is within the walls of the church, the people of God. And, and, and Micah says, remember, remember this picture of who God is. He comes out of his holy temple. And we have to stand before him in all honesty. 
with fear and trembling, looking not at the culture pointing fingers there, but looking at ourselves, looking in our own hearts, reckoning with who we are before a holy God. Thirdly, when we look at his character, though, we see his personality. And this is really important. I, I use this term partly because it started with P. Uh, but it, it's, it's the personhood of God, right? God is, is not detached. You start to talk about somebody who's so holy, and you start to talk about somebody who's so powerful. And, you know, we read verses like Psalm 50 where it says, you thought I was like you, but I'm not, I'm different. But that doesn't mean that he's merely an idea. That doesn't mean that he's merely a power. It, it, you know, God exists to, to connect, uh, to, to be a, a very real personhood among us. This is what Advent and the Incarnation is about. God came down and, and took on human flesh, flesh and bones. We see that here in this text. You know, God speaks to his people. That's what verse 1 is, right? The word of the Lord that came through Micah to the people, God speaks. He is in a relationship with his people. We don't bow before an impersonal power. We don't bow before an idea. We bow before one who is unlike us, yet has made himself like us in very significant ways. He is a person. You start to press into this, and I think we, we get a sense of why Tozer says this is so important. Because when, when we really see who God is, it begins to shine a light on what our lives should be like. You know, it's, it's so easy to just get caught up in the exigencies of the day, the things that are right in front of us, uh, to get caught up into these and, and feel like this is what I need to be doing, this is what I need to be doing. But can I suggest to you that maybe for Advent, you know, part of what we need to be doing is meditating on God and, and allowing what the Scripture says about Him to fill us and trusting that as we do that, as we meditate on His character, as we meditate on His commission, which we'll look at in just a minute, as we meditate on these things, we will have some clarity with regards to our own life. You know, it's so easy to just get drawn into the things that excite us or the things that you know, our hearts easily resonate with. You know, at the beginning, I, I mentioned two things, which certainly are not opposed to each other and certainly uh, find themselves in God, you know. But we are drawn, it seems like, to either pull. You know, sometimes we talk about conservative and, and liberal values. You know, for the conservatives, it's morality. And we look around and we see immorality in various ways you know, and sexuality, theft, all of these different things. And, and we want to say, you know, we need to be more like God. We need to be more moral. 
And the other side, and it's not really the other side, so don't, if I've communicated that wrong, I, I, I apologize. But, you know, for others, we're more easily drawn to justice. You know, we see things like racism and we see things uh, like a large gap monetarily between the wealthy and the poor. And, and, and we say that's not right and we're drawn to that and we're drawn to lean into those causes. L like I said, we're, we're drawn in different directions. But when we meditate on the holy... When we meditate on who God is, he says, I am all of this. This is what it is. It's not a political affiliation. It's not whether you're conservative or liberal. It's, do you know me? Have I filled your heart so that you are passionate about all of the things that I am passionate about? And this is why I think it's so important. I would agree with Tozer. It is, is that we need to be filled with the knowledge of this one who is holy. That we know who we are inviting into our world when we pray, God, please come. He is this one. And I, I want to go next to his commission. This is one of the you know, hazards of printing the bulletin on Thursday. I changed my mind. Uh, so his commission is this. I mean, this holy one, he's coming down, and, and he is going to tread on the high places. You see that in verse 3. Behold, the, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down, and he will tread upon the high places of the earth. Now, we start talking about mountains. Is it the physical high places? Sure. Yes, it's the physical high places. You know, there is something of, uh, of the Tower of Babel here. God is, is showing us that however majestic we think, you know, our buildings are, our skyscrapers in Dubai, or even the creation, you know, the mountains, the Canadian Rockies, they just take our breath away. We think there is nothing more majestic than these uh, high places. God says, Look at I have to come down. I have to come down to even get to your high places. So great is my, uh, my power, my majesty, my being. But beyond that, the high places were, were also the places where, you know, the sins against God, the, the idolatry took place. You know, we see that all over the prophets. We see it in Amos chapter 4. We see it, uh, you know, throughout the Old Testament on the high places, animal sacrifices to the Baals, to the Asherahs, uh, the ritual prostitution, uh, the burning of incense to these false gods, uh, sending the children of Israel sent their daughters through the fire on the high places. They committed human sacrifices Jeremiah chapter 32, you know, God says to his people, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it even enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. You know, the high places uh, are the affront against the holiness of God. And he is coming down with justice, with vengeance, 
to tread upon the high places of the earth, of our hearts. I mean, remember, he is coming to his people. He is coming to the church, and he is saying, you have erected these high places in your hearts, and this is what I have to deal with. This is why the incarnation. This is why I am coming down. Get such graphic pictures as in Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this that comes in crimson garments? Who is splendid in his peril, marching in the greatness of the strength? It is I, says the Lord, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads a winepress? Because I have tread the winepress alone, says God. And from the people, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. We oftentimes, you know, think about Christmas only in terms of meek and mild. Only in terms of a way in a manger. Those things are certainly part of the Christmas story. But are we thinking about the incarnation in terms of a God who comes with his garments stained red because of justice? Because of the wrong and the evil that is opposed to him. Now the good news is this. You know, vengeance and redemption are put side by side. And, and, and one of the, the only reason that we can see that is because in Christ, justice and mercy kiss. In Christ, those two go together. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, it is the lifeblood of the people that he takes on himself. It is their sin, their wickedness that stains his garment red before a holy God, his Father. But it is also his blood that is poured out for the redemption of his people. And so in his vengeance, he is mighty to save. This is part of the beauty and this is you know, part of you know, sort of Lewis's whole idea of a lion who is not a tame lion by any stretch of the imagination, but he's good. He's good, and we can come to him in awe with fear and trembling, but we can come to him knowing that his paws for the believer are velvety soft, and that we will be carried about as a tender child. Do you know God in this way? Both ways. You know, I think for many of us, we, we become so comfortable in our concept of, of who God is and, and how he relates. And, and we need this discomfort of the mightiness, the vengeance, the holiness, all of these things that the prophets speak to the people of Israel about. Others of you, you have no concept of the velvety paws. 
You know, maybe you look at your life and the only thing that you can see is God's vengeance because you know that you've made a wreck of it. As we continue to go on, we're asking the question, who is this God? He is the one coming out of his holy temple, but he is mighty to save. And he delights, Micah says, in steadfast love, in showing mercy. Please know all of who God is. Just a couple of things, just by way of application. You know, when we think about the commission of God, when we think about the vengeance to tread upon the high places, you know, this, this absolutely should uh, give us hope in the midst of a world gone wrong. I mean, we see so much on the moral, on the injustice side, we see so much immorality that takes place, you know, flaunting itself in the face of God, whether it be our sexuality, whether it be the murder of unborn children, whether it be any of these things. We see so much in the way of immorality. God will judge that. We see so much, and we wonder, God, are you there? Do you hear? But he promises, yes, I will judge that. We see so much, by the way, of injustice. Uh, you know, the, the wealth disparity does not do God glory at all. God will just that, or judge that. The racism that, uh, and classism that affects our world God sees it and he will step in and he will judge that. We need to take solace in that and we need to allow that to fuel us to be God's people in this day and age. Not that we are the ones that bring justice. Not that we are the ones who are the condemnatories. But we are the ones that point them and say, look at there is a reality. And there is a God who is both just and merciful. Do you know all of this? And we step into it wherever we see it because we have the confidence that it's not up to us. We have the confidence that God is coming out of his holy place and will do these things. But there is also, and again, I, I alluded to this, this is for the church, right? It's for the people of God. And so, may I again just encourage us all to really scour our hearts. You know, there's, there's a very real sense in which Advent is similar to Lent, right? We, we look in in order to prepare a place for the Lord who has come. You know, our anticipation... You know, our looking ahead encourages us to look inward and, and to really say, can we, in, in good conscience, you know, allow our own flagrances, whatever they might be, you know, whether they be on the immorality side or on the injustice side whether they be on the just pure arrogant, moralistic side, whatever the, the flagrant uh, behaviors or attitudes of our heart may be, you know, God is inviting us to lay those 
before him. Again, who is a God like him that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who is a God like him that delights to show mercy? That's the final word in Micah, right? And we're getting there, and we're going to celebrate that, and we're going to soak in that. But with that promise, repentance. You know, repentance coming before the Lord and saying, these are the things in my heart. I'm not going to take time to look out there. I'm not going to judge the broader evangelical church. I'm not going to judge the people who are committing these racist acts. I am going to look in here, and I am going to make uh, my approach on my knees before the one who is holy. Lastly, his claim, there's two aspects here, and I've already emphasized this, so we'll go quickly here. You know, one is he, he's coming to his people, right? We, we see this, and, and please, we read the, the prophets, especially the minor prophets, wrong so often. We read them and say, yeah, that's for out there. You know, yeah, look at all those people, what they're doing, mm-mm. They're for the church. They are always for the people of God, calling the people of God to repentance. Why? Because we have a responsibility to those out there. Who are the priests to the nations? We are. Who are the ones who are to bring the people into the presence of God in safety? That was the job of the priest, right? To distinguish the, the clean and the common, the holy and the, uh, you know, the profane. That was the job of the priest so that uh, those who, the people could come into the presence of God in safety, Because they recognized in the Old Testament that God was not like them. I mean, they saw the mighty acts. They saw him destroy the Egyptians. They saw the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. And they said, how are we going to live before the face of this holy God in safety? And God gave them the priest to distinguish the clean and the common and the holy and profane so that they could come into the presence of God in relative safety. We are the priesthood of believers. And our job is to usher all the peoples. You saw that in verse 2, right? Uh, All the peoples. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth. And our job is the priesthood of believers is to usher people in to the presence of God by pointing to the only sacrifice that will ever suffice, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And in just a minute, we are going to come to his table and we're going to break the bread and we're going to drink the cup and we're going to say, I am not worthy, but hallelujah, Lord, you are. And we are going to be so nourished so that we walk out and we say, let me tell you, who is a God like our God? There is no God like our God because he has met me, a foul, rancid sinner. And he's made me whole and clean and beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word.
Lord, like Micah, words escape us. And so we pray in the quietness of the next few moments, the reflection, the meditative aspects of our time at your table, that you would meet us, that you would disabuse us of ourselves, that you would enlarge our vision, that we would grasp on to both your holiness and your mercy in ways that are fresh. We love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the hymns that we've been given that I think touches on this holiness of God is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. It's hymn number 193. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. We get that glimpse, as it were, into the holy temple of the Lord. May it fill our hearts. Let's stand together as we sing.